0: please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being our good shepherd. I pray now that you'd help me preach, and I pray for each one of us to hear your voice, your call into discipleship, and that you'd give us the courage to heed that call. I ask it in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So this this morning, I want to use a couple of animal analogies. in this sermon, we were driving back from my daughter's college, and we were listening to the Chronicles of Narnia on audio file. You know, it's C.S. Lewis's uh, children's fiction, but I, there's nothing childish about it. It's really powerful stories of the implications of the gospel. My favorite of all of them is not the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's actually the Horse and His Boy, and that it's titled that way on purpose. There is a horse of Narnia. Aslan, the Christ figure's land where the animals speak and have human minds and intellect. And this horse is outside of Narnia and is basically living in a captured kind of way as a, along the, the normal dumb horses that don't have human intellect. And there's a boy who has been also um, living in a somewhat of a captive situation with a, a rough taskmaster over him. And the horse named Bree wants to get away. And there's a day when Shasta the child is in the stable and the horse speaks to him of course, shocking him because the horse realizes he can't just run away by himself or someone will capture him and put him back in the stable like a wild horse. But if there's a rider on him, now he can get away. So he needs a human to go with him. But Shasta's never uh, ridden a horse. And so the horse has to teach him how to ride it. And he says, here's how to get up on top of me and don't touch the reins and don't ever use the spurs. And it made me think, you know, I'm picturing Clint Eastwood, like, sticking those things in the side of a horse and hurting it. So I looked up how a spur works or how to get a horse to go. And those of you that are horse people, correct me after this, because I just saw this on YouTube. I don't know, I don't know from personal experience. <laughs> but the person I saw squeezed the horse with her calves, and then if it didn't go, turned her heels in, and then if it didn't go, rolls the spurs on its side, not jabs them in. And, it, and that's enough, apparently, to get a horse going. So we know kind of generally how a spur works, but I don't know if many people know what a goad is, G-O-A-D. That's a a verse, that's a a word that's in our passage today. A goad is a sharp stick that a shepherd or in particular a farmer would use. If a beast of burden is not moving where it needs to, it's just a, a poker basically, not to harm the animal, but to get its attention. Like if someone pokes you with a pencil, you jump a little bit, to get them to move forward, to to go where they're supposed to go. And verse 11 in our text from the end of Ecclesiastes says that the words of the wise are like goads. They're meant to poke you. They're meant to help God's people get where they're supposed to get. And I want to ask the question, have you let this Ecclesiastes study do that for you? These are the words of wisdom from God's Word, and they're meant to goad you, to spur you on. You know, we, would, we, we actually do use the word spur quite a bit, we get that, um, but goad is a little different. To poke you, to prod you, to push you in the direction you're supposed to go. Specifically, have you seen enough of Kohelet's empty secularism to be ready for something more? We have looked at his pursuit of wealth, pleasure, women, power, seasons, wisdom, success, work, life, and death, and they've been like one cul-de-sac after another. He goes as far down as he can, and he gets to the end of the cul-de-sac, and there's nowhere else to go, and so he just kind of goes, fear God, eat, drink, try and find joy in your work, and then he comes back out and goes down another cul-de-sac until he hits the end, and back out and down another one. He just keeps doing this, and so it's kind of frustrating to read it, and what we've been doing is, is jumping beyond that to Christ as the fulfillment But today's text is a very important one. It's a call to discipleship, and I want you to hear the call of Jesus. He is calling you to come be a disciple. Are you a disciple of him? And before you say yes, people ask that question and similar ones will say things like, I believe in God, I go to church. But that doesn't make you a disciple. A disciple is a word that's thrown around Christianity quite a bit, and it's kind of become nominal to mean, I go to church, I believe in God, but a disciple literally is a student or an apprentice. Apprentice is even better. Someone who's a master of a trade brings a new person alongside and says, this is how you do these things, exactly, and shows you how to do them until you're competent to do them on your own. That's what it really means to be a disciple, to be a a follower of Jesus, At the end of his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller has laid out an incredible argument why Christianity makes sense. It's a reasonable faith. It makes the best sense, actually, of what we see in the world. But that's not enough. To be a disciple requires a, a choice to bring yourself to the Lord. And he writes this prayer that he recommends people pray as a starting point, not the end. But at the end of his book, this prayer is there. It says this, Father, I've always believed in you and Jesus Christ. Note that. A lot of people say, Father, I I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I've always believed in you and Jesus Christ. But my heart's most fundamental trust was elsewhere, in my own competence and decency. This has only gotten me into trouble. As far as I know my heart, today I give it to you. I transfer my trust to you and ask that you would receive and accept me, not for anything I have done, but because of everything Christ has done for me that prayer is a sincere prayer to become a disciple to give your heart to god but it's the beginning of a pathway where every facet of your life now has to be shaped and formed and refashioned in light of the gospel the gospel changes everything about life and it takes a lifetime to bring everything into submission to that a disciple is someone who has said i'm in jesus you're lord and i'm not Come and shape me, form me, search me. Know my innermost part, everything. I bring my life to you to be in that process of discipleship. Now, our passage today is important. I'm on page, it's on page 559 in the Pew Bible, and it's the last five verses of Ecclesiastes. I've saved this as the last sermon because I think it's a very important one. We have a new voice speaking. This is not the words, these are not the words of Koholet, the, the teacher, anymore. This is a, a different voice Kovlet is, um, he's done everything he can think of under the sun, so to speak, meaning from a secular perspective, under God's general oversight, but not necessarily following as a disciple. What wisdom and satisfaction can I find in this life that that will fulfill? And his answer is nothing, it's vanity. And um, so each week, when we get to that cul-de-sac, we've actually jumped into the New Testament and said, how does Jesus fulfill this theme? Where is Jesus better than this thing that Cohelet is pursuing. And this, these last five verses are uh, this other voice. One commentator uh, called him the frame narrator. Like think a picture frame, putting boundaries, the frame narrator. The third person who is saying, here's the frame and in the middle is the picture of Cohelet." This frame narrator is actually imparting wisdom to his son. Whether it's a literal son or not doesn't matter. It could be sons, daughters, it could be students, teacher, a lot of times we use a father-son metaphor for a student teacher. My son, learn what I have for you. And so he has, has this frame. Chapter 1, verse 2 is repeated in chapter 12, verse 8, which is the last word before our reading today. And it says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's chapter 1, verse 2, and it's chapter 12, verse 8. That's, that's the frame. And this narrator, he gave chapter 1, verse 1, and said the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and now he gives a paragraph on the end. And he's stepping back far enough to look at the big picture of all of Ecclesiastes, which is very important for us to do, because if you just take a little section and read it, you can come up with all kinds of bad interpretations. You have to keep the big picture in mind. Kohelet is asking the question, can I find satisfaction in this life apart from God, under the sun, and he does it ARGUABLY FOOLISHLY IN EVERY POSSIBLE CATEGORY. BUT THIS IS A KIND OF WISDOM THAT WE CAN GLEAN OFF OF HIS LEARNING. SO HERE'S WHAT THE FRAME NARRATOR SAYS ABOUT Koholad IN VERSE 9. BESIDES BEING WISE, HE ALSO TAUGHT THE PEOPLE KNOWLEDGE, WEIGHING AND STUDYING AND ARRANGING MANY PROVERBS WITH GREAT CARE. THE PREACHER SOUGHT, AND YOU CAN DEBATE WHETHER OR NOT HE DID IT, SOUGHT TO FIND WORDS OF DELIGHT AND TO WRITE WORDS OF TRUTH. Well. Sometimes it was very confusing. Sometimes it didn't delight. Other times it did. So it's, he, the frame narrator is saying to his son, this is what he was attempting to do. And then he gives us this little poetic verse. And it's wise words and something sharp, and then something sharp and wise words. Kind of an uh, inverted parallelism. And he says, the words of the wise are like goads, that sharp stick. Nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So sometimes um, a farmer or shepherd would drive a nail through a stick so they had a sharp end to poke the animal. It's another kind of goading. And Hebrew parallelism will say the same thing slightly different. So the words of the wise are like goads, and then um, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And then there's a little phrase. They are given by one shepherd now, the ESV translators and the King James and the NRSV translators make that a capital S, one shepherd. The Hebrew doesn't have upper or lowercase. It's all one kind of letter. So that's a translator's decision. But I think it's an accurate one. Where do the wise words come from? They come from God. Jesus is the one who is that one shepherd. In fact, um, the, scriptor- the scholars refer to verbal plenary inspiration. This is a seminary phrase. Verbal meaning the words that are in here are given by God. Not just the concepts, the actual words, but he was writing through human personality. But every word that's in the Bible is the word that God wanted, it to, wanted to be there. He inspired it, it's inspired words. And it's plenary meaning complete, the whole thing from cover to cover. This is one shepherd speaking through different personalities to give us his truth. And um, Jesus is speaking the Lord is speaking through the scriptures, through his word. Now in verse 12, the frame narrator says to his son, beware of anything beyond these words. And people are constantly trying to go outside of the scriptures to find more truth, better truth, uh, easier route, the easy button, whatever it might be. All kinds of things we do. There's the self-help approach. I want to fix my problem myself instead of humble myself and have a savior fix me. The number of books it talks about the end of there would be no end to the writing of books and much studying is a weariness don't read that verse during finals week it's important to study but if you just keep trying to find a different book than this one it's just going to weary you it's not going to help you the self-help section is huge in amazon and bookstores and you can't you can't fix your own problem you need a savior and another thing that we do is you know the secularism the worldliness that's what Kohelet's experiment was. I'm going to try everything I can to find satisfaction. But as we just sang, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And then, of course, the, the, the revisionism. We're going to revise the faith to fit our context. If I just change what God's Word says, then I don't have to change myself we're sitting in a building where we've been paying a mortgage for 15 years and we still owe two million dollars on it because we had to leave a denomination that had revised the content of the faith to accommodate a cultural trend around human sexuality and a view of the self as the source of truth that's not good but that's we would rather go to that length than to just simply become disciples and surrender and submit ourselves to the lord I think G.K. Chesterton's quote is very appropriate. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting or lacking. It's been found hard and therefore left mostly untried. The minute discipleship requires anything of people, they pull away and go, I'm gonna see if I can find an easier route. I'm gonna look for a way around this rather than stick to the basics. You know, there's an old baseball movie. I won't tell you what it is because it's full of awful things, but there's a quote in it that's very helpful. You know, they're, they're doing anything except playing baseball, and, and the quote goes, it's not that hard of a game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball, and you run around the bases. Just do that stuff, right? The basics of the game. And what the frame narrator comes down to is he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man, and the word duty has to be supplied. The whole essence of man. This is humanity at its finest. And I might paraphrase it slightly and say, fear God, do what he says, and remember his judgment. Because we're looking at it from this side of the cross, the other side of the cross. Fear God, do what he says, and remember his judgment. You know, the one shepherd, Jesus, has given us the content of the gospel. And in the Old Testament, Jesus said, or the Father said that he was going to send his one shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, he looks at the leaders of Israel, and they were not doing a good job of caring for God's people. They were getting fat themselves on the sheep instead of tending to the sheep. And so he says, uh, this is uh, Ezekiel 34, various verses, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will feed them in justice And then he says, I will rescue my flock. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. This was written after King David died. Ezekiel was way later. So he's not talking about David. He's talking about the son of David. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus himself will say in John 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. In fact, he goes on and he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. And he was referring to the Gentiles. He says, I will call them also, and they will hear my voice. There will be one, there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, that one shepherd theme that's mentioned here by the frame narrator, that's mentioned in Ezekiel, is also on the words of Jesus himself. He's saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one shepherd. And he's calling. Can you hear his voice? He's prodding. He's He's wooing. He does what, uh, whatever He needs to to get us to move where we should because He loves us that much. Now, let me switch metaphors for a second here. Um, you know, one of our comfortable words, as it's called in the liturgy, at, right after the absolution, we confess our sins, are reminded of God's forgiveness, and then there are some comfortable words from Scripture. There's one that says, come to me if you're weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And then we jump from there to John three sixteen and say, God so loved the world, he sent his son. But do you know what comes after that word rest in Matthew 11? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what a yoke is? It's a wooden bar, and they put it on an ox and if they're going to put two oxen together, they have a young one and an old one that's trained. They put the, the bar across both of them. So you're basically tied to the mature one. And then you can learn to plow the field. You can learn to respond to the voice of the farmer and not necessarily need the prod. You're not, you don't need to be goaded. And he's saying, come to me, put my yoke on. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Koholet has tried the hard way. The hard way is to do it the world's way, and it does not satisfy, it just does damage. And he ends in despair. This morning when we got here for the early service, there was a thick cloud sitting on everything, and I thought this is perfect for a way to end Ecclesiastes, because that's where the secular route goes. It goes to depression, it goes to failure, it goes to vanity of vanities. It's just vapor, a mist, and now it's sunny out there. It's gone, we're into the gospel, so that's good news. right? This is helpful for us. Jesus is saying, If you want to come and actually be my disciple, let me show you how to do this. Fear God, obey my commands. He said, If you're my friends, you'll obey what I command, and remember my judgment. Meaning, on that cross, Jesus took our judgment. That's your cross. You should have died on that cross. You should be judged for everything. Instead, if you're a Christian, He took that judgment for you. And that doesn't mean you know, the get out of hell free card. Great, I'll say that. Whatever prayer I have to, now I've got my so-called fire insurance. I'm safe from the judgment, and I can do whatever I want. Oh, no, that's not what this means. This means you have an eternal debt of gratitude. There's, an, there's a huge cost that's been paid. Just because it's free to you doesn't mean it was cheap. It cost him dearly. He gave his life out of love for you, and that's so that you could come alongside of him and be his student, his apprentice, his disciple. It's an invitation into a way of living. You know, um, when we started this Ecclesiastes study, there's the, there's the section where the king in Jerusalem has access to everything, and so he, he just indulges. Wine, women, building projects, extravagance, the whole thing. And somebody came to me with a video of a modern sports hero and, and was like, this guy became a Christian. Watch this video. And he was disappointed, by the way, when I didn't use it that next Sunday as a sermon illustration, I held on to it till now. It's about the the football and baseball star, Deion Sanders. He's a right now he's coaching in Colorado and Deion Sanders has the ego of three men, but the sports ability of two men, which is pretty impressive. I mean, he's the only athlete to ever be in the world series and the Super Bowl in the same year and you start reading his resume of what he's done. It's impressive stats like crazy impressive. But you might not be aware that he is a, a devout Christian, and, and it came out of a suicide attempt. He drove his car off a 40-foot cliff in 1997 because he just was in despair. And asked about this in an interview, in this video, he says this, I was just empty. I tried cars, jewelry, clothes, women, money, everything. Nothing could fulfill me. And in despair, he just decided to end his life. But he lived. Not He was unscratched and it led him to Christ, and as he describes this, he says, God was calling me. He was calling me collect. Now, if you're under 30, let me explain to you something. (laughs) Do do any of you know what a collect phone call is? Okay, all right, seriously. In fact, as I described it at nine o'clock, I thought, did we really used to live like this? We all have cell phones now, but here's how a collect call works. Every phone is tied to a wire on a wall, so if I wanna call you, and I, there's a phone bill we get from any call that goes out beyond like 10 miles from the house, I get charged for the distance. It's a long distance call, and if I wanna call you but don't have money, I can call you collect. So I pick up the phone, I put zero in, and I say, hello, operator, and somebody says, yeah, this is the operator, I'd like to place a collect call to my friend Sam at this number. Hang on a second, says the operator. She calls Sam and says, uh, Sam, you've got a call, collect from Mike McDonald. Will you accept the charges? If he says yes, then she connects us and we can talk and he gets the bill. No joke, that's how you made a collect phone call. Okay, context. Deion Sanders is over 50, so he, he's, he said, God was calling me, collect. He's saying, pick up the phone, pick up the phone, meaning if you accept it, there's going to be a charge to you. I want to talk to you, but I also want you to come be my student. I want you to come be my disciple. I'm gonna show you how you should live. Deion Sanders got to the end of his life. Like, he was, he was done. He had no hope and he wanted to end it, but God was calling. The shepherd, the good shepherd's voice was saying, come, come to me, come follow me. I've got, I've got something for you. But there's a cost to it. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, the Apostle Paul was attacking the church when he, when he was a, a very powerful Jewish leader and he was arresting Christians. And his story is told three times in Acts. Luke, who wrote Acts, thought it was pretty important. He tells the story in Acts chapter 9, and then Paul gives his testimony recorded in Acts chapter twenty second, and then I think in the 25th or 27th chapter. What's interesting is on the first one, they're walking to Damascus, there's a bright, glorious light, and they, they hear a voice from heaven, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But when he tells it again the third time, He adds another phrase in there that Jesus said to him. Jesus said, you know what the phrase is? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's what Jesus said to him. I've been prodding you to get you to come to me, and you keep kicking against the spike. It's hard for you to do that. It hurts you. Why would you do that? Jesus is saying, "Come, come my way. Let me be your Lord. Be my student. Let me show you the way. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling you and I to learn his ways. Will you be a disciple? Are you willing to give him a shot? This whole thing the frame narrator has set up for his son is to show the emptiness of the secular pursuits. God has more for us. So it's pretty simple fear him, do what he says, and remember his judgment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good news. Thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your persistence. And Lord, I ask that you would show us any false or functional saviors we've put in our life in place of you. Would you help us lay them down and to come and follow you? Thank you for prodding us when we need it. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.